Right. I am. I'm sure you've heard the expression, or you've seen it on a um, on a bumper sticker or something. You only live once. YOLO. Okay. Or its close cousin. One life, live it. Or for the highbrow classicists amongst us, carpe diem, seize the day. Okay, the idea, of course, isn't it, that, hey, life is short, so get everything out, get everything that you want out of it now. You only get one shot at life. Okay, so you want to seize the opportunity. This life is it. So don't leave any regrets. Don't let anything or anyone stop you living the life or being the person that you want to be. Now, of course, such a view of life uh, comes out of, is built off of sec a secular materialist worldview. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> that thinks that this life is all there is. Okay, but such a worldview faces a problem, doesn't it? Because stuff happens. Stuff happens in life. Circumstances outside of our control can spoil our dreams. Worse than that, other people can wreck them. And what are, you, what are you supposed to do when that happens? What are you supposed to do when either of those things happen? Well, I think the passage that we are looking at today in uh, Mark's Gospel deals with exactly this. Plans upended by external circumstances and a life wrecked by the influence of powerful others. Okay, so first point this morning, when storms come. When storms come. Okay, Jesus and his disciples are in a boat on Lake Galilee in verse 37. A great windstorm arose. And I've never been there, but apparently because of its... <clears throat> excuse me. Because of its geographical position, Lake Galilee, several hundred meters below sea level, surrounded by mountains, can become what one commentator calls a boiling cauldron when a storm comes down off of the mountains and hits the lake, which is clearly what is happening here, isn't it? Verse 37 again. The waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, I've told this story before, so I'm sorry if it's boring, but um, we have a little uh, sailing dinghy, and when we first moved here, and I was teaching the girls to sail, sorry, <clears throat> and I was teaching the girls to sail, I would get pretty frustrated by the, uh, the fact that Lac Le Mans always stayed so calm, because there's never any wind, is there? Okay, so one afternoon, when the wind began to get up a bit, I thought, right, this is my chance. This is, the, um, this is a chance to show Naomi, our eldest, what sailing is really like. So we rigged up the boat. We launched out into the lake. The wind was blowing, and within about 50 meters, I realized, hey, maybe this was not such a good idea. <laughs> okay, maybe this was not such a good idea, because we were bombing along. Okay, but the waves, I was struggling to keep this boat upright. The waves were coming in, the boat was filling up. We couldn't bail the water out of the boat more quickly than it was actually coming in. I remember thinking, I wonder how deep it is and whether the mast will stick up above the water <laughs> when I'm such an optimist I am. And I was scared. Okay, I think it's one of the few times I've actually been scared in a boat. Okay, so were these guys. And they are experienced fishermen. And it's nighttime, so it's dark. And there's a storm, so there's not even moonlight. 
And everything's worse when you can't see, isn't it? Everything's worse when it's dark. Everything's worse when things are wet. And they are. It's dark and it is wet. And the waves are crashing in and um, they are cold, probably. The boat is filling up. And unless something changes... Okay, this is only going one way, isn't it? Things are going downwards. Okay, but you don't have to be in a boat to experience that, do you? I mean... You know, right from you know, right from the first. You know, I mean, Oregon, the uh, third-century theologian, described our. Thank you, Kevin. My favourite Honduran. <laughs> right, right from the start. I mean, Oregon, the um, right from the start of um, commentators commenting on this passage, they've seen these parallels. Okay, Oregon, the third-century theologian described our existence as this wave-tossed life. And Augustine described those times when your heart is taking a battering, like this boat is taking a battering. Your dreams, or the way you thought that your life should go, it's taking on water. Or someone has hurt you, and as a result, your heart can be like this lake, a boiling cauldron of anger that you are struggling to control. Or maybe temptation is battering you, it's beating against you. And there's something that you want to do, but you don't want to do. And you feel torn, you feel battered. There's this, there's this storm going on inside of you. Or circumstance after circumstance is not going your way. And like water pouring in over the sides, no sooner have you dealt with one issue, then here comes another one. And you are feeling overwhelmed. And you only live once, according to secular materialism. And here is your life heading to the bottom. I mean, it's no wonder that people get anxious, is it? if they believe in secular materialism, or, or that we might get anxious. It's no, it's, it's no wonder that depression can add to the storms that we are experiencing when we think, I've got to live my, I'm supposed to be living my best life now. Okay, do you know the crazy thing? The crazy thing is that this journey was Jesus' idea. Verse 35, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. Who initiated this? Jesus did. Okay, so... If you, are a, if you are a Christian, okay, you can be walking in God's will. You can be exactly where Jesus wants you. Okay, you can be being absolutely obedient to Jesus, doing what he has told you to do, in the right relationship, in the right job, in the right church, right in the center of God's will. And you can be thinking, man, I am in the middle of a storm. Life is not supposed to be like this. And just like these disciples, you can feel overwhelmed. Meanwhile, what is Jesus doing? Verse 38, he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Okay, they are bailing water like crazy. They are desperately fighting to keep this boat afloat. And there is Jesus, asleep on a cushion. They're desperate. And Jesus is strangely not desperate. 
Now, have you ever experienced something like that? I mean, every family has its drama queen, doesn't it? Ours uh, certainly does. And, um, you know, you can be, you know, you can, uh, somebody can be having, whoa, all of this drama going on. And everyone is thinking, what is all this about? Or maybe, maybe you are the drama queen. Or maybe it's, you are not the drama queen. Okay, you, you see how bad things are and nobody else seems to get it, do they? Nobody seems to be quite as worried about this as you are. Not even God. Okay, you can be eaten up with something and it can seem like God doesn't get it. But he doesn't seem to share our panic, does he? Or your world can be falling apart or at least not going the way that you hoped it would go. And what do you hear from God? You're praying about this. What do you hear from God? Nothing. Worse than that, it seems like Jesus is pushing up the Zs. Verse 38. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? It's less of a question and more of an accusation, isn't it? This is the God-forsakenness of the sufferer. That feeling that you are facing the worst and God does not seem to care. God doesn't seem to get it. That feeling that he has given up on you. Because if he did care, surely you would feel that. But what I feel right now is forsaken. And yet look at it, they still go to wake him up, don't they? You see, deep down, even though they are accusing him, they know that he is the answer. They're accusing him, but they know he's, they know he's the solution. And if you think about it, you do too. If you're a Christian, you can feel overwhelmed and you wish that you felt his presence. Maybe you, maybe you sat there feeling that now. But the fact that you wish that you felt his presence tells you that you know that his presence is what you need. And if you are not yet a Christian, you know that this situation that you are facing is outside of your control. And strangely, you find yourself praying. You're not sure whether you believe in God or not, but you find yourself praying. Why? Because you know that you need his help. Okay, but it's not just storms that come. Second point, when darkness comes. And when they, when they get across to the other side of the lake, they are met by this man with an unclean spirit. Look how Mark describes him. Verses three to five. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now, if you only live once is the motto, is a motto of our age, the idea that to be truly you, you've got to be truly free, that's arguably the philosophy of our age, isn't it? That you do not have to ask permission from anyone to be you. So take a look at this man. Because he's the ultimate free man, isn't he? He's totally free. 
No one can bind him. No one can tell him what to do. No one has him under their thumb. No one's debating about social constructs with him. He's not asking permission from anyone. He is totally free. But he's not free, is he? No one can chain him, and yet he is bound with chains. You know, our current culture says, don't let anyone restrict you from being you. This man shows us what unrestrained freedom looks like. But think, how did he get there? How did he end up there? And I don't think it's hard to imagine. You know, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he was offered all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, if only he would bow down and worship Satan. What do you think this man was offered as he set out? You know, when he started out down this path that ended in a graveyard living among the dead, what was he promised by the stuff that he was chasing? Hey, take this stuff, or take this job, or sleep with this person, or stretch yourself financially for this thing, or compromise this principle, or mix with this group of people, and you will have the city at your feet. You're going to have friends. You are going to be popular. Think of the status. Think of the kind of money that you are going to make. And where does it end? In a life out of control. A life ruled by its passions, barely above the level of an animal. A life promised the high life and now lived among corpses. The American author Ben Palpant writes, People chase pleasure until it is no longer pleasurable. They chase freedom and it ends up enslaving them. And as a result, this man is left socially isolated. I bet he wasn't told that when he set out, was he? I bet he was told, you are gonna be popular. Think of the friends you're gonna have. Think you're gonna be in the in crowd. But now he's aggressive and unpredictable and totally alone. It is one of the tragic outcomes of thinking that life consists in living free of the constraints of others you inevitably become more and more isolated. And just look at the figures as the rates of loneliness keep on growing in our societies. Okay, but he's also self-harming, cutting himself with stones. Okay, but you don't need a stone, do you, to do that? You don't need to look like this man to do that. You can look much more sophisticated. You can look like one of us. Maybe you just have to overwork or overeat, or overdrink, or engage in a habit that harms. But the reason that you do it is the same reason that he is doing it, to bring some peace, to bring some release, to deal with your guilt, or to try to justify or prove yourself to yourself or to others. Because with everything else that darkness brings, darkness brings self-loathing. Okay, but then look how the demons respond when Jesus asks them, what is your name? Verse 9, he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. 
And a legion was a Roman army division consisting of several thousand soldiers. And we don't know how many um, demons are afflicting this man. What we do know is they have reduced him to a number, haven't they? What's your name? Legion. A thousand. Thousand eight hundred. Two thousand. Whatever. I don't have a name. I have a number. Listen, that is all that secularism and scientific materialism can ever offer you. Because they can never tell you why you matter. Why you matter, why you are nothing more than the sum of the atoms that make you up. Why you are nothing more than a meaningless and ultimately irrelevant statistic in a vast, empty, meaningless and ultimately irrelevant universe of numbers. They can never give you a name. But Jesus can. He offers you something far better. Last point, when Christ comes, when storms come, when darkness comes, when Christ comes. Now, when I was a boy, we used to sail out of Bosom Harbour, and Bosom is a beautiful village on the south coast. It's got a church that dates back over a thousand years to Saxon times, and Bosom is famous for two reasons. Okay, firstly, it has a car park. And that car park is covered by seawater when the tide rises. And if you are a local, you know that, and you know not to park there. If you are a tourist, okay, you might not be so lucky, okay? Almost every high tide, somebody's car has to be towed out. Okay, the second, this is true, okay, that never visit Bosom and park in that car park, okay? Second reason Bosom is famous is King Canute is buried in the church. All of you know King Canute? Everyone, maybe not. Okay, um, okay, and it was a well. I'll tell you why he's famous. Okay, because it was at Bosom, most likely in the car park before it was a, before it was a car park, that Canute tried his hand at turning back the waves. Okay, now the way the stories is normally told is Canute is a proud king who thinks he can control the tide and turn the waves back. The reality was almost certainly different from that, because Canute was a Christian, and he had had it up to here with his fawning courtiers telling him, how wonderful you are, Canute. Okay, so he ordered everybody down to the low water mark, and he took his throne with him, And he sat down and he had all his men standing around him as the waves began to come in. And he starts commanding the tide to go back. Does the tide listen to him? Strangely not. By the time the water is up to his thighs, Canute gets up, picks up his throne, turns to his men and says something along the lines of, Now you can see just how powerful I really am. And he walked back up the hill to the beach. Because who can control the sea? Jesus can. And in the midst of the chaos of the storm, the disciples wake him. And Mark tells us, verse 39, he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased And there was a great calm. 
And the great windstorm of verse 37 has become a great calm. What must that calm have been like? What must that have been like? Imagine you're in that boat. You have just been in this life-threatening storm. And now everything is calm. You know, you might say of someone, his silence said everything. What does this stillness say? The beating wind and the crashing waves, they said something, didn't they? They said something about the power of nature. What does this calmness say about the power of Jesus? Verse 40. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, if their question of him was an accusation, his is a rebuke, isn't it? Because the implication is clear. If only your trust in me was deeper, you would not be afraid. Now, we might say, hey, but come on. Surely it's just natural. It's even right to be afraid in the face of physical risk, isn't it? Sure. But they had heard the demons call him the son of God. He's told them that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, that he is the one stronger than the strong man. So what are you thinking? Do you really think that I'm going to drown? Do you really think I'm going to let you drown? What, what kind of stuff are you believing? And as they sit in that boat, in that great calm, Mark tells us, verse 41, they were filled with great fear. Before, they were just afraid because they knew what they were dealing with, a storm. But now, they're terrified because they don't know what they're dealing with. Who is this man? Verse 41 again. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You see, the calm says he's not just Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of the sea. He is Lord of the storm. He's the king of wind and waves of heaven and earth. But who has that kind of power? Who has the power to do that except for God? The one with power over the forces of chaos and confusion, over death and despair and destruction, and not just in the boat, but in our hearts and lives. The one whose power is greater than any trial or temptation that we might face. So why does he not still the storm sooner in our lives? Why does he leave me in the storm while he seems to be asleep? Well, going back nearly 2,000 years, Cyril of Alexandria, one of the church fathers, wrote simply, Jesus' sleep matures their faith that it is by going through the storm and experiencing its full raging power and only then seeing Jesus still it, once they'd given up all other, other hope, once they'd given up all their hope of saving themselves, 
It's by going through that that their knowledge and their awe of him grows. And maybe that is why God is not as quick to change our circumstances as we sometimes wish he would be. Because sometimes things, some things like, like wine and cheese and our faith, sometimes things mature best by leaving them, don't they? Okay. And sometimes it is by going through storms that we learn more about ourselves. What it is I'm fearing what it is I'm really trusting in, and more about him. Okay, and yet, as great a teaching moment as a storm is, Jesus still stills the storm, doesn't he? He still stills it. And he will do the same for you. you know, in the chaos of your circumstances, he is the one who can give you peace. When you are feeling battered by temptation, he's the one who can bring you through that. When your heart is that boiling cauldron of anger, he's the one who can calm it. You see, again, right from the earliest commentators, people have seen the similarities between this storm and the prophet Jonah's storm. Because both are in a boat, both Jonah and Jesus are fast asleep, and they are both awakened by nearly identical words, don't you care that we are all perishing? And in both, the storm is stilled. But with Jonah, the storm is stilled and the sailors' lives are saved by Jonah being thrown into the storm. But that doesn't happen with Jesus. So why are the similarities up to this point? Because this story is telling us that one day Jesus will be thrown into the storm to save the lives of the sailors, just like Jonah. And at the cross, Christ throws himself into the storm of God's wrath to save not just the sailors, but all of us. And when you see that, when you know that he loves you enough to give his life for you, it transforms the way you see trials and temptations. Because it tells you, if he loves me like that, he is not going to abandon me in my trial. And if he loves me like that, I'm not going to dishonor him in my temptation. Okay, but it also transforms the way we see the hurts that are done against us that can make our hearts so angry. Sure, others may seek to harm me, but Christ loves me. But sometimes you have to awaken Christ in your heart to experience that. Sometimes you have to turn to him in prayer and ask him and plead with him. And as you do, it is as if you are waking him up. As Augustine said, when your heart is being battered, this is the moment. This is the moment to awaken Christ and let him remind you of those words. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Because it's as you see him as he really is, with a love that would go to the cross for you and a power that would raise him from the dead, that he settles the storm in your heart. 
But listen, he will also restore your humanity and your dignity. Jesus steps ashore in verse 6. When he, the demonized man, saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. It's incredible, isn't it? The man who no one else could tame, the man who no one else could bind, falls before Jesus. Verse 7, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Have you ever wondered how the demons know who he is? They know who he is because they've met him before, haven't they? When his power and his glory and his authority were not veiled by humanity. And they know who he is. And they know what he is capable of. And they fall before him. But think about it. They are legion. They are like one of those thousands, uh, those armies of thousands of orcs in the Lord of the Rings. Evil, malignant, malign. And Jesus steps ashore. And that army falls down before him. And then with a word, he dismisses them. And verse 15, the locals came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. An army of evil has been slowly disintegrating this man. And Jesus restores him. He's been running around screaming, and now he is sat at Jesus' feet, listening. He's been naked and exposed, and Jesus clothes him. Last Saturday morning, um, Sue, Katie Becker and I, we bought ourselves a couple of croissants, and we went and had breakfast under the cherry trees in one of the uh, parks in Lausanne. Just because the blossoms were so uh, beautiful, we thought, let's go, let's, go and, let's, go and, let's go and sit under some of you know, God's beauty and have breakfast there. And as we sat there, about 20 meters, 30 meters in front of us, this group of young women set up a metal pole and wearing nothing but their underwear, hung and danced and wrapped themselves around this pole. Okay, let's just say this was not quite the breakfast that we, <laughs> that we had in mind. You're thinking, where can I look? But then, a slightly bizarre thing was then, when they came to pack up and were getting changed, they would stand in front of each other to cover them from our view to cover them from us uh, looking. Slightly bizarre, isn't it? Okay, they had had no problem at all being all but naked on the pole, but they clearly didn't want to be totally exposed. But it's not bizarre, is it? Because none of us want to be exposed. But that's what the powers of darkness do to us. They expose us. It's what unrestrained freedom that offers you everything it ends up leaving you exposed and this man needs someone to cover him and Jesus does it Jesus does it and what he needs we all need we all need covering whether it's for our shame or our guilt we all need someone to cover us someone to tell us you are loved you are forgiven and at the cross, Christ was uncovered. He was stripped naked that we might be clothed. He was exposed to public shame that we might be covered, 
clothed with Christ's righteousness, covered with God's love. And then Mark tells us this man was in his right mind. You know, people would tell you, you are crazy to believe in Christianity. You would be crazy to become a Christian. And yet it is Christ who restores our sanity. You see, our current culture tells you To be really free, to be really you, you mustn't let anyone constrain you. The truth is different, isn't it? As Tim Keller has said, true freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones, the boundaries within which you can truly flourish. And like this man, you will only find those sitting at Jesus' feet learning to live life the way that you were always designed to live it. And yet, it is exactly that liberating power of Jesus that provokes these two very different reactions. Verse 17, the locals began to beg Jesus to depart from their region, while verse 18, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. One begs Jesus to leave, the other begs to be able to leave with Jesus. One begs Jesus to go, the other begs to be able to stay. The strange thing is, Jesus does as the people ask and not as the man. He leaves them, but he doesn't let the man go with him. Why? Okay, for two reasons. Firstly, because he won't force himself on anyone. He doesn't force himself on people any more than he will force himself on you. If you are not yet a Christian, like this man, you have to want to be with Jesus. So take a look at him again this morning. Look at him restoring this man and decide for yourself, is it more crazy to ask him to leave you alone or to want him to stay? But there's another reason he refuses this man's offer. And that's because this man, he wasn't just left exposed. He was left isolated. And so there is one last step in his restoration, isn't there? Verse 19, go home. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. The world tells you, you need to be you, and you end up increasingly isolated. Jesus says, no, it is in losing yourself that you find yourself. It is in denying yourself that you find yourself. It's in loving and serving God. It is in loving and serving others that you will truly thrive that you will be truly free. And as you do that, as you love and serve God, as you love and serve others, you are restored to community, community, family, but you also help build it. So Jesus tells him to go and tell everyone what the Lord has done for him. And verse 20, he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. Church, let us go into the week and do exactly that. Let's, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you.